Hello there, and welcome to tonight's episode of Down to Sleep. This is a podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. Thank you for joining me tonight. From wherever you are in the world to here, I appreciate you. Let's go ahead and take a nice deep breath and tuck ourselves in. Before we jump into tonight's book, just a reminder that you can get all the links you need for this podcast at downtosleeppodcast.com. You can support us on Patreon with a few dollars a month, for which you get two episodes every week, as well as access to compiled and completed audiobooks. That's at patreon.com slash downtosleep. And as always, if you'd be so kind as to leave us a positive review on whatever app you're listening on, that really helps us reach more people. Thank you so much. Let's begin. We continue from where we left off. Toad, gay and irresponsible, was walking briskly along the high road, some miles from home. At first he had taken bypaths and crossed many fields, and changed his course several times in case of pursuit. But now, feeling by this time safe from recapture, and the sun smiling brightly on him, and all of nature joining in a chorus of approval to the song of self-praise that his own heart was singing to him, he almost danced along the road in his satisfaction and conceit. Smart piece of work, that, he remarked to himself, chuckling. Brain against brute force, and brain came out on top, as it's bound to do. Poor old ratty. My, won't he catch it when Badger gets back? A worthy fellow ratty, with many good qualities, but very little intelligence and absolutely no education. I must take him in hand some day, see if I can make something of him. Filled full of conceited thoughts such as these, he strode along, his head in the air, until he reached a little town, where the sign of the Red Lion, swinging across the road halfway down the main street, reminded him that he had not breakfasted that day, and that he was exceedingly hungry after his long walk. He marched into the inn, ordered the best luncheon that could be provided at so short notice, and sat down to eat it in the coffee room. He was about halfway through his meal, when an only too familiar sound approaching down the street made him start and fall a-trembling all over. The poop-poop drew nearer and nearer. The car could be heard to turn into the inn-yard and come to a stop. Toad had to hold on to the leg of the table to conceal his overmastering emotion. Presently the party entered the coffee-room, hungry talkative and gay, voluble on their experiences of the morning and merits of the chariot that had brought them along so well. Toad listened eagerly, all ears for a time. At last he could stand it no longer. He slipped out of the room quietly, paid his bill at the bar, and as soon as he got outside sauntered round quietly to the inn-yard. "'There cannot be any harm,' he said to himself, "'in my only just looking at it.' The car stood in the middle of the yard, quite unattended, the stable helps and the other hangers-on being all at their dinner. Toad walked slowly round it, inspecting, criticising, musing deeply. "'I wonder,' he said to himself presently, 
I wonder if this sort of car starts easily. Next moment, hardly knowing how it came about, he found he had hold of the handle and was turning it. As the familiar sound broke forth, the old passion seized on Toad and completely mastered him, body and soul. As if in a dream, he found himself somehow seated in the old driver's seat. As if in a dream, he pulled the lever and swung the car round the yard and out through the archway. And as if in a dream, all sense of right and wrong, all fear of obvious consequences, seemed temporarily suspended. He increased his pace, and as the car devoured the street and leapt forth on the high road through the open country, he was only conscious that he was towed once more, towed at his best and highest, towed the terror, the traffic queller, the lord of the lone trail, before whom all must give way or be smitten into nothingness and everlasting night. He chanted as he flew and the car responded with sonorous drone. The miles were eaten up under him as he sped. He knew not whither, fulfilling his instincts, living his hour, reckless of what might come to him. To my mind, observed the chairman of the bench of magistrates cheerfully, the only difficulty that presents itself in this otherwise very clear case is how we can possibly make it sufficiently hot for the incorrigible rogue and hardened ruffian whom we see cowering in the dock before us. Let me see. He has been found guilty, on the clearest evidence first, of stealing a valuable motor-car, secondly, of driving to public danger, thirdly, of gross impertinence to the rural police. Mr. Clerk, will you tell us, please, what is the very stiffest penalty that we can impose for each of these offences, without, of course, giving the prisoner the benefit of any doubt, because there isn't any? The clerk scratched his nose with his pen. Some people would consider, he observed, that stealing the motor-car was the worst offence, and so it is. But cheek in the police undoubtedly carries the severest penalty, and so it ought. Supposing you were to say twelve months for the theft, which is mild, and three years for the furious driving, which is lenient, and fifteen years for the cheek, which was pretty bad, sort of cheek, judging by what we've heard from the witness box, even if you only believe one-tenth of what you heard, and I never believe more myself, those figures, if added together correctly, are tot up to nineteen years. First rate, said the chairman. "'So you'd better make it round twenty years and be on the safe side,' concluded the clerk. "'An excellent suggestion,' said the chairman approvingly. "'Prisoner, pull yourself together and try and stand up straight. "'It's going to be twenty years for you this time. "'And mind, if you appear before us again, upon any charge whatever, "'we shall have to deal with you very seriously.' "'Then... The brutal minions of the law fell upon the hapless toad, loaded him with chains, and dragged him from the courthouse, shrieking, praying, protesting, across the marketplace, where the playful populace, always as severe upon detected crime as they are sympathetic and helpful when one is merely wanted, assailed him with jeers, 
carrots, and popular catchwords. Past hooting schoolchildren, their innocent faces lit up with pleasure they ever derive from the sight of a gentleman in difficulties. Across the hollow-sounding drawbridge, below the spiky portcullis, under the frowning archway of the old grim castle, whose ancient towers soared high overhead, past guardrooms full of grinning soldiery off-duty, past sentries who coughed in a horrid, sarcastic way, because that is as much as a sentry on his post dare do to show his contempt and abhorrence of crime, up time-worn winding stairs, past men-at-arms, where mastiffs strained at their leash and poured the air to get to him, past ancient warders, their halberds leant against the wall, dozing over a pasty in a flagon of brown ale, on and on, past the rack-chamber and the thumbscrew room, past the turning that led to the private scaffold, till they reached the door of the grimmest dungeon that lay in the heart of the innermost keep. There at last they paused, where an ancient jailer sat, fingering a bunch of mighty keys. "'Odds bodikins,' said the sergeant of police, taking off his helmet and wiping his forehead. "'Roose the old loon. Take over from us this vile toad.' a criminal of deepest guilt, matchless artfulness and resource. Watch and ward him with all thy skill, and mark thee well, greybeard. Should all untoward befall, thy old head shall answer for this, and a moraine on both of them. The jailer nodded grimly, laying his withered hand on the shoulder of the miserable toad. The rusty key creaked in the lock. The great door clanged behind them. Toad was a helpless prisoner in the remotest dungeon of the best guarded keep of the stoutest castle in all the length and breadth of Merry England. Chapter 7 The Piper at the Gates of Dawn The willow wren was twittering his thin little song hidden himself in the dark selvage of the riverbank. Though it was past ten o'clock at night, the sky still clung to and retained some lingering skirts of light from the departed day. The sullen heats of the torrid afternoon broke up and rolled away at the dispersing touch of the cool fingers of a short midsummer night. Mole lay stretched on the bank, still panting from the stress of the fierce day that had been cloudless from dawn to late sunset, and waited for his friend to return. He had been on the river with some companions, leaving the water rat free to keep an engagement of long-standing with the otter. He had come back to find the house dark and deserted, and no sign of rat who was doubtless keeping it up late with his old comrade. It was still too hot to think of staying indoors, so he lay on some cool dock leaves and thought over the past day and its doings, and how very good 
they all had been. The rat's light footfall was presently heard, approaching over parched grass. Oh, the blessed coolness, he said, and sat down, gazing thoughtfully into the river, silent and preoccupied. You stayed supper, of course, said the mole presently. Simply had to, said the rat. They wouldn't hear of my going before. You know how kind they always are, and they made things as jolly for me as they ever could, right up to the moment I left. But I felt a brute all the time, as it was clear to me they were very unhappy, though they tried to hide it. Mole, I'm afraid they're in trouble. Little Portly's missing again, and you know what a lot his father thinks of him, though he never says much about it. What? The child, said the Mole lightly. Well, I, I suppose he is. Why worry about it? He's always straying off and getting lost, and turning up again. He's so adventurous, but no harm ever comes to him. Everybody hereabouts knows him and likes him, just as they do the old otter. You may be sure some animal or other will come across him, and bring him back again all right. Why, we've made him ourselves, miles from home, and quite self-possessed and cheerful. Yeah, but this time it's more serious, said the rat gravely. He's been missing for some days now, and the otters have hunted everywhere, high and low, without finding the slightest trace. They've asked every animal for miles around. No one knows anything about him. Otter's evidently more anxious than he'll admit. I got out of him that young Portly hasn't learnt to swim very well yet, and I can see he's thinking of the weir. There's a lot of water coming down still, considering the time of the year, and the place always had a fascination for the child. Then there are, well, traps and things, you know. Otter's not the fellow to be nervous about any son of his before his time, and now he is nervous. When I left, he came out with me, said he wanted some air, and talked about stretching his legs. But I could see that it wasn't that. So I drew him out and I pumped him, and got all of it from him at last. He was going to spend the night watching by the ford. You know the place where the old ford used to be, in bygone days before they built the bridge? I, I know it well, said the mole. But why should Otter choose to watch there? Well, it seems that it was there that he gave Portly his first swimming lesson, from the shallow, gravelly spit near the bank, and it was there that he used to teach him fishing, and there young Portly caught his first fish, of which he was so very proud. The child loved the spot, and Otter thinks that if he came wandering back from wherever he is, if he is anywhere by this time, poor little chap, he might make for the ford that he was so fond of. Or if he came across it, he'd remember it, and stop there and play, perhaps. So Otter goes there, every night, and watches. On the chance, you know. Just on the chance. They were silent for a time, both thinking the same thing. The lonely, heart-sore animal, crouched by the ford, watching and waiting, the long night through on a chance. Well, said the rat presently, I suppose we ought to be thinking about turning in, but he never offered to move. Rat, said the mole, 
I simply can't go and turn in and go to sleep and do nothing, even though there doesn't seem to be anything to be done. We'll get the boat out, we'll, we'll paddle upstream, the moon will be up in an hour or so, and we'll search as well as we can. Anyhow, it'll be better than going to bed and doing nothing. Just what I was thinking myself, said the rat. It's not the sort of night for bed anyhow, and daybreak's not so very far off. Then we may pick up some news of him from early risers as we go along. They got the boat out, and the rat took the skulls, paddling with caution. Out in midstream, there was a clear narrow track that faintly reflected the sky, but wherever shadows fell on the water from bank, bush, or tree, they were as solid to all appearance as the banks themselves. The mole had to steer with judgment accordingly. Dark and deserted as it was, the night was full of small noises, song and chatter and rustling, telling of the busy little population who were up and about, plying their trades and vocations through the night until sunshine should fall on them and send them off at last to their well-earned repose. The water's own noises, too, were more apparent than by day. Its gurglings and cloops, more unexpected and near at hand, and constantly they started at what seemed a sudden clear call from an actual articulate voice. The line of the horizon was clear and hard against the sky, and in one particular quarter it showed black against a silvery climbing phosphorence that grew and grew. At last, over the rim of the waiting earth, the moon lifted with slow majesty until it swung clear of the horizon and rode off free of moon rings. Once more they began to see surfaces, meadows widespread and quiet gardens, the river itself from bank to bank, all of it softly disclosed all washed clean of mystery and terror, all radiant again as by day, but with a difference that was tremendous. Their old haunts greeted them again, in other raiment, as if they had slipped away and put on this pure new apparel, and come quietly back, smiling as they shyly waited to see if they would be recognized again. Fastening their boat to a willow, the friends landed in this silent silver kingdom, and patiently explored the hedges, the hollow trees, the runnels, and their little culverts, the ditches, the dry waterways, before embarking again and crossing over. They worked their way up the stream in this manner, while the moon, serene and detached in a cloudless sky, did what she could though so far off to help them in their quest. Till her hour came and she sank earthwards, reluctantly, and left them. The mystery once more held field and river. Then a change began slowly to declare itself. The horizon became clearer. Field and tree came more into sight, and somehow with a different look. The mystery began to drop away from them. A bird piped suddenly and was still. A light breeze sprang up 
and set the reeds and bulrushes rustling. Rat, who was at the stern of the boat, while Mole sculled, sat up and listened with a passionate intentness. Mole, with gentle strokes, was keeping the boat moving while he scanned the banks with care, looked at him with curiosity. It's gone, sighed the rat, sinking back into his seat again. So beautiful and strange and new. Since it was to end so soon, I almost wish I had never heard it, for it has roused a longing in me that is pain, but nothing seems worth while but just to hear that sound once more and go on listening to it forever. No, there it is again, alert once more, entranced. He was silent for a long space, spellbound. Now it passes on and I begin to lose it. Oh, Mole, the beauty of it, the merry bubble and joy, the thin, clear, happy call of distant piping. Such music I never dreamed of, and the call in it is stronger even than the music is sweet. Row on, Mole, row, for the music and the call must be for us. The Mole, greatly wondering, obeyed. I hear nothing myself, he said, but the wind playing in the reeds, the rushes. The rat never answered, if indeed he heard. Wrapped, transported, trembling, he was possessed in all his senses by this new divine thing that caught his helpless soul and swung and dandled it, a powerless but happy infant in a strong, sustaining grasp. In silence, Mole rode steadily, and soon they came to a point where the river divided, a long backwater branching off to one side. With a slight movement of his head, Rat, who had long dropped the rudder lines, directed the rower to take the backwater. The creeping tide of light gained and gained, and now they could see the colour of the flowers that gemmed the water's edge. "'Clearer and nearer still!' cried the rat joyously. "'Now you must surely hear it. "'At last I see that you do.' Breathless and transfixed, the mole stopped rowing, as the liquid run of that glad piping broke on him like a wave, caught him up, and possessed him utterly. He saw the tears on his comrade's cheeks, and bowed his head and understood. For a space they hung there, brushed by the purple loose strife that fringed the bank. Then the clear imperious summons that marched hand in hand with intoxicating melody imposed its will on Mole, and mechanically he bent to his oars again. The light grew steadily stronger, but no birds sang as they were wont to do at the approach of dawn, and but for the heavenly music all was marvellously still. On either side of them, as they glided onwards, the rich meadow grass seemed that morning of a freshness and a greenness unsurpassable. Never had they noticed the roses so vivid, the willow herb so riotous, the meadow sweet so odorous and pervading. 
Then the murmur of the approaching weir began to hold the air. They felt a consciousness that they were nearing the end, whatever it might be, that surely awaited this expedition. A wide half-circle of foam and glinting lights and shining shoulders of green water. The great weir closed the backwater from bank to bank, troubled all the quiet surface with twirling eddies and floating foam streaks. It deadened all other sounds with its solemn and soothing rumble. In midmost of the stream, embraced in the weir's shimmering arm spread, a small island lay anchored, fringed close with willow and silver birch, reserved, shy, but full of significance. It hid whatever it might hold behind a veil, keeping it till the hour should come, and with the hour those who were called and chosen. Slowly, but with no doubt or hesitation whatever, and in something of solemn expectancy, the two animals passed through the broken, tumultuous water, and moored their boat at the flowery margin of the island. In silence they landed, and pushed through the blossom and scented herbage and undergrowth that led up to level ground, till they stood on a little lawn of marvellous green, set round with nature's own orchard trees, crab-apple, wild cherry, and sloe. This is the place of my song dream, the place the music played to me, whispered the rat, as if in a trance. Here in this holy place, here if anywhere, surely we shall find him. Then, suddenly, the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror, indeed he felt wonderfully at peace and happy but it was an awe that smote and held him, and without seeing he knew that it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With difficulty he turned to look for his friend, and saw him at the side, cowed, stricken, trembling violently. And still there was utter silence in the populous bird-haunted branches around them. Still the light grew and grew, Perhaps he would never have dared to raise his eyes, but that though the piping was now hushed, the call and the summons seemed still dominant and imperious. He might not refuse with death himself waiting to strike him instantly once he had looked with mortal eye on things rightfully kept hidden. Trembling, he obeyed and raised his humble head, and then... In the utter clearness of imminent dawn, while nature, flushed with fullness of incredible colour, seemed to hold her breath for the event, he looked in the very eyes of the friend and helper, saw the backward sweep of the curved horns gleaming in the growing daylight, saw the stern hooked nose between kindly eyes that were looking down on them humorously while the bearded mouth broke into a half-smile at the corners, saw the rippling muscles on the arm that lay across the broad chest, 
the long, supple hand holding panpipes, only just fallen away from parted lips. Saw the splendid curves of the shaggy limbs, disposed in majestic ease on the sward. Saw last of all, nestling between his very hooves, sleeping soundly in entire peace and contentment, the little, round, podgy, childish form of the baby otter. All this he saw, for one moment, breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky, and still, as he looked, he lived, and still, as he lived, he wondered. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking, are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Never, never. And yet, oh, Mole, I am afraid. The two animals crouched to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. Sudden and magnificent, the sun's broad golden disk showed itself over the horizon facing them the first rays shooting across the level water meadows, taking the animals full in the eyes and dazzling them. When they were able to look once more, the vision had vanished. The air was full of the carol of birds that hailed the dawn. As they stared blankly in dumb misery deepening, as they slowly realized all they had seen and all they had lost, a capricious little breeze, dancing up from the surface of the water, tossed the aspens, shook the dewy roses, and blew lightly and caressing in their faces. And with its soft touch came instant oblivion. For this is the last best gift that the kindly demigod is careful to bestow on those to whom he has revealed himself in their helping the gift of forgetfulness, lest the awful remembrance should remain and grow, and overshadow mirth and pleasure, that the great haunting memory should spoil all the afterlives of little animals helped out of difficulties, in order that they should be happy and light-hearted as before. Mole rubbed his eyes and stared at Rat, it was looking about him in a puzzled sort of way. Mm. I beg your pardon, what did you say, Rat? he asked. I think I was only remarking, he said slowly, that this was the right sort of place, and that here, if anywhere, we should find him. And look, why, there he is, the little fellow. And with a cry of delight, he ran towards the slumbering portly. But Mole stood still a moment, held in thought as one wakened suddenly from a beautiful dream, struggling to recall it, and can recapture nothing but a dim sense of the beauty of it, the beauty, till that too fades away in its turn, and the dreamer bitterly accepts the hard, cold waking and all of its penalties. So Mole, after struggling with his memory for a brief space, shook his head sadly and followed the rat. Pause.
portly woke up with a joyous squeak, and wriggled with pleasure at the sight of his father's friends, who had played with him so often in the past days. In a moment, however, his face grew blank. He fell to hunting round in a circle with a pleading whine, as a child that has fallen happily asleep in its nurse's arms, and wakes to find itself alone and laid in a strange place, searching corners and cupboards, running from room to room, despair growing silently in its heart. Even so, Portly searched the island and searched, dogged and unwearying, till at last the black moment came for giving it up and sitting down and crying bitterly. The mole ran quickly to comfort the little animal, but Rat lingering looked long and doubtfully at certain hoof marks deep in the sward. Some great animal's been here, he murmured slowly and thoughtfully, and stood musing, musing, his mind strangely stirred. Come along, Rat, called the mole. Think of poor Otter waiting up there by the ford. Portly had soon been comforted by the promise of a treat, a jaunt on the river in Mr. Rat's real boat, and the two animals conducted him to the waterside placed him securely between them in the bottom of the boat, and paddled off down the backwater. The sun was fully up by now and hot on them. Birds sang lustily and without restraint, and flowers smiled and nodded from either bank. But somehow, so thought the animals, with less of the richness and blaze of colour that they seemed to remember, they wondered where they had seen them recently. The main river reached again, they turned the boat's head upstream, towards the point where they knew their friend was keeping his lonely vigil. As they drew near the familiar ford, the mole took the boat into the bank. They lifted Portly out and set him on his legs on the towpath, giving him his marching orders and a friendly farewell pat on the back. They watched the little animal as he waddled along the path contentedly and with importance. They watched him till they saw his muzzle lift and his waddle break into a clumsy amble. He quickened his pace with shrill whines and wriggles of recognition. Looking up the river, they could see Otter start up, tense and rigid, from out of the shallows where he crouched in dumb patience and could hear his amazed and joyous bark as he bounded up to the path. Mole, with a strong pull on one oar, swung the boat around, and let the full stream bear them down again, whither it would, their quest happily ended. "'I feel strangely tired, Rat,' said the Mole, leaning wearily over his oars as the boat drifted. It's being up all night, you'll say, perhaps, but that's nothing. We do as much half the nights of the week at this time of year. No, I feel as if I've been through something very exciting and rather terrible. And it was just over, and yet nothing particular has happened. Or something very surprising and splendid and beautiful, murmured the rat, leaning back and closing his eyes. I feel just as you do, Mole. Simply dead tired, 
though not body tired. It's lucky we've got the stream with us to take us home. Isn't it jolly to feel the sun again, soaking into one's bones? Hark to the wind playing in the reeds. It's like music, far away music, said the mole, nodding drowsily. So I was thinking, murmured the rat, dreamful and languid. Dance music, the lilting sort that runs on without a stop, but with words in it too. It passed into words and out of them again. I catch them at intervals. Then it's dance music one, once more, and then nothing but reeds, soft, thin, whispering. You hear better than I, said the mole sadly. I cannot catch the words. Let me try and give you them, said the rat softly, his eyes still closed. Now it's turning into words again, faint but clear. Lest the oar should dwell and turn your frolic to fret, you shall look on my power at the helping hour, but then you shall forget. Now the reeds take it up. Forget, forget, they sigh, and it dies away in a rustle and a whisper, and then the voice returns. Lest limbs be reddened and rent, I spring the trap that is set. As I loose the snare, you may glimpse me there, for surely you shall forget. Row nearer, Mole, nearer to the reeds, it's, it's hard to catch, and it grows each minute fainter. Helper and helper I cheer, Small waifs in the woodland wet, Strays I find in it, Wounds I bind in it, Binding them all forget, Nearer, mole, nearer. Ah, oh, it's no good, The songs died away. What do the words mean? Asked the wandering mole. That I do not know, Said the rat simply. I passed them on to you as they reached me. Now they return again, this time full and clear. This time at last it's the real, unmistakable thing. Simple, passionate, perfect. Well, let's have it then, said the mole, after he waited patiently for a few minutes, half dozing in the hot sun. But no answer came. He looked and understood the silence. With a smile of much happiness on his face, and something of a listening look still lingering there, the weary rat was fast asleep. And that is where we close the book on tonight's episode of Down to Sleep. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this reading of The Wind in the Willows.